Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The Telegraph. Telegraph. Podcasts. As Britain awaits its next Prime Minister, how does one of the most effective contemporary British politicians view the challenges facing the country. Nigel Farage joins me to discuss the most important issues of the day, from mass migration to the energy crisis. Are we witnessing the end of the Conservative Party? I think so, yeah. Why would you vote for them? Other than not liking Labour. You know, the classic where first-past-the-post politics has now taken us in this country. We don't vote for who we like. We vote for, oh, well, we dislike them, but we dislike the others even more. It's very odd the way our politics has become. Now, at the last election, Corbyn was a very, very major negative factor. In the 15 election, there was, oh my goodness me, the SNP. We can't bear the thought of them being in coalition. So we'll vote Conservative. And you begin to understand as a Conservative voter, they simply lie to you at every election. I know in sort of Telegraph Towers to say these things almost sounds like heresy, but it's true. They never had any intention of controlling inflation, no intention of reducing numbers. They are eco-zealots on the most astonishing scale. They put taxes up to the highest since Clement Attlee was in power. They have since 2010 denuded the Royal Air Force, the Navy, the Army, Law and order in many parts of our big cities is now gone. And I mean gone to the point that without a sort of Rudy Giuliani, New York-style, tough, hard-man attitude may never come back. We've seen no connection with small business, with entrepreneurship, with sole traders, purely a preoccupation with the big global corporates. I have absolutely no idea what the Conservative Party is, having helped them get their 2019 victory more than any other human being outside the Conservative Party. I'm sorry, it's a strong word, but I despise what they've done, what they've become, the weakness of their so-called leaders, their total lack of connection with the real world. I thought Cameron and Osborne were out of touch with real people, This lot are even more out of touch. I've actually got to the point, I hope they lose. I hope they lose big, because that's the only way we're going to get a recalibration of what the Conservative Party really is. Well, the history of the Conservative Party is one of adaptation, and it's been one of the most flexible political organisations in world history. It's the most successful political party there's ever been, and it's able to adapt and reinvent itself at various different general elections. If you look at 2010 to 2015 to 2017 to 2019, these all had different iterations of what the Conservative yes, Party was. Yes, and it was. reinvented itself in 2019 mm. as a party that believed in Brexit. And implicit in that was it believed in border controls. Look what's going on. They can't play that game again. But they've got a new leader coming up soon, probably Liz Truss. Yep. Can she turn things around? Well, 
you, you know, can a um, Remainer who voted three times for Mrs May's total sellout, treacherous sellout, some would say, of the Brexit deal, who appears to have been on this extraordinary Damascene conversion, is it real? Is the first question I would ask. I don't know the answer to that, nor do you. Does she have the character, the temperament, the depth of personality to take on these huge challenges, these huge reforms that need to be made when she's going to have the civil service, the BBC, much of the press against her? I don't know. I mean, someone who knows her well said to me, well, Nigel, the one good thing is she's mad enough to perhaps try and do anything. Maybe that's the upside. But the evidence is... Oscar Wilde, wasn't it, that once said that second marriages were the triumph of optimism over experiences. And this is now the fourth Conservative leader in six years. And every time we say, it's going to be great. Theresa May's going to be wonderful. No, she wasn't. She was a disaster. Boris Johnson's going to be great. We elected him as a Conservative. He governed as a Liberal. And now we're thinking Liz Trust is going to be great. Where is the evidence to back any of that up? I will say this. For the sake of the country, I hope I'm wrong. And I really do mean that. But I doubt that I am. I don't think that the London-based political class, dare I say, in Telegraph Towers Media, understand just how repulsed up to 50% of 2019 Conservative voters are. The recent polling is fascinating. The, the Leave voters are dropping the Conservative Party in swathes. And as you say, Liz Truss is a Remainer. However, she has become the sort of Brexiteer representative of this leadership campaign. Very briefly, let's talk about mm. her rival, uh, Rishi Sunak. Why has he failed to connect with Conservative voters? Goldman Sachs globalist. End of. That's what he is. That's a, that's a very... That's what he is. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, what more do you want to know? And utterly fraudulent. Did make me laugh, though. His little video that he made on the cross-channel migrant crisis had me in it. And then he was wearing a wax jacket. It was brand new. He'd never owned one before. And the next day, he's in a pub, meeting the boys in the pub and pulling pints. I mean, don't make me laugh. Utterly fraudulent at every level. So when you look at the senior leadership of both the Conservative and Labour parties, hmm. compare that to the sort of historic precedent of the politicians that we've had, are we in a glut of politicians at the moment where we, <coughs> there's no competent people, there's no historic figures who are ready to turn things around? I mean, look, if we go back through time, we have been plagued by incompetence. You know, I mean, Gilbert and Sullivan made a very good living out of this, you know, back in the late 19th century. But there are big figures that appear all through time. Attlee himself, a, a remarkable figure. I mean, whether you agree with the welfare state 80 years on or not is another question. But I mean, wow, imagine that. You win an election and set this apparatus up of a national health service and all these things. Amazing. Churchill, obviously, well, that speaks for itself. Thatcher, clearly a giant figure. Blair, enormous. Enormous. I don't agree with the fact that our population has risen by 8 million since 2002. He started it, but hey, it was the Tories that continued it. So we, we have seen big figures over the years. We've seen principled figures over the years. I look at the current leadership of the Labour Party and what I think we're going to get next week with the Conservative Party and they just all look like career politicians to me. I'm sorry, maybe I'm getting old, maybe I'm becoming too cynical, but that's how it appears to me. They're not great people. And great people, 
it doesn't mean you have to agree with them, but they can still be great people because they represent something, they stand for something. What do these people actually stand for? One of the person, people you mentioned was Margaret Thatcher, and mm. she's become very relevant in this leadership campaign. She's become the historical reference of both candidates. Both candidates are trying to emulate some of her grit, some of her bravery and courage in the face of the socialism that she faced in the 1970s mm. and, of course, Soviet communism at the time as well. Do you think that Liz Truss can in any way replicate that Thatcher spirit? Well, she might wear the same clothes and she might try and sound the same. I doubt she's even half the person. I may be wrong. I doubt she's half the person. Look, this party has lost half of its votes since 2019. Just, just sort of reflect on that for a minute. All the Boris lovers out there. Oh, my God, it's terrible. Seller's remorse. Just reflect on the fact this man lost half your vote in two years. That's why he's gone and he's not coming back. To get those people back is going to take an enormous effort to re-engage working Britain and working class Britain. It's going to need something really, really special. Now, if I was a Tory member, I'd vote for her, not for Rishi, on the element that the gamble of her is worth it in the sense that maybe she'll surprise. But I, I just think the brand is dead. I don't know what it represents. To be honest with you, I think right now they're headed for a 97-style wipeout. I really, really do. And frankly, they deserve it. Let's talk a little bit more about Margaret Thatcher. This is a fascinating mm. politician, someone that you've admired throughout your political Absolutely. life. And there are many debates within the Conservative Party today as to whether we should go for a Thatcherite economic policy, whether at the moment we've <coughs> been through 20 years of what they call statism, or you know, as you mentioned earlier, mm. taxes at the highest they've been mm. since... 70 years, so huge reg regulations, mm. massive welfare state. So this is one argument, and the solution to that is Thatcherism, it's neoliberalism, it's cutting welfare, it's cutting taxes. <sighs> Look, the, the direct comparison with Thatcherism is ridiculous. You know, we're now talking about 43 years ago. It's silly to compare one with the other. It's a real apples and pears job. The underlying principles of Thatcherism, and I would argue Reaganism, too, are very, very important. We've got ourselves into a mindset where big government presents itself as the, as the answer to every single problem. And, hey, who's been the big government party for the last 12 years? The Conservatives. At no point have the Conservatives rolled back the size of the state. And you can talk about the pandemic. I mean, have you driven up the M4 lately? You drive from Reading to Heathrow. It's like being in China. There are cameras everywhere, speed... Oh, you're absolutely terrified. You think, what on earth is going on in our country? And all of this in the last 12 years has happened under a Conservative government who seem to bow down to big things, because big is good. They've ignored all the little people. I do think the idea of reducing the size of a state, Brexit was the perfect opportunity to do that. A massively burdensome rule book you know, that our five and a half million small traders and self-employed had to live by. This was the opportunity to get the burden of the state off them. The opportunity with financial services, still our biggest industry, not just in Canary Wharf or the city, but in Cardiff, in Birmingham, in Manchester, everywhere, insurance companies, etc. They haven't done a thing. They haven't done a single thing. And Rishi Sunak says he's going he's to review all EU legislation in the first year of his program. I mean, what have they been doing? 
There is an alternative vision of the last 20, 30 years of economic policy in Britain, and this comes from Conservatives who are more on the Macmillan end of the argument. And they would say that Tony Blair was the heir to Margaret Thatcher. We've had economic <coughs> liberalism since the 1980s. We've seen massive deregulation. We've seen the banks have been hugely prominent. What deregulation? Well, compared to the 1970s, Margaret Thatcher's deregulation has, has, has remained in terms I, 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 of banking and industrial. absolute myth. It's one of the biggest myths you can ever encounter that the 2008 collapse was because we deregulated the banking centre. No, we haven't. We take it away from the Bank of England, who'd been doing it since 1694, and gave it to a bunch of TikTok bureaucrats, failed traders, 2,000 of them, in Canary Wharf, working for what is now known as the FCA. It was the bureaucratisation of everything that led to it going wrong. And I, I remember very, very well talking to a, a very old financial market journalist that he'd worked at the Express, he'd worked here for a bit. And I said to him, after Northern Rock went wrong, I said, what would have happened if the Bank of England had still been running, you know, the banking and, 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 and building side industry? It's all very easy, he said. The boss, Adam Applegarth, he would have been summoned to London. They would have met in the usual corner table at the Savoy Grill. And over coffee, he would have been told, pull your horns in or we'll act. And instead, all that expertise, all that knowledge was replaced by a bureaucratic regulatory model. That was what Blair did to Britain. You know, gave massive power to unelect. I mean, I moaned about Brussels all those years, but hey, we've got enough problems here with appointed, unelected regulators who interpret the law as they see fit and terrify. I mean, speak, speak to anybody, uh, whether it's in uh, compliance or HR in companies. <clears throat> I mean, people living in fear of these people and this culture. And in 12 years of Conservative government, None of that's been turned around. Indeed, Liz Truss, it seems, wants to bring in a new law to stop builders wolf-whistling at women as they walk past the street. And you ask me, is Truss going to turn things around? Well, I'm just curious, Thatcher's reforms may have gone too quickly. And, for example, those communities, the mining communities, the communities that existed, that were, that were based on the <coughs> Do you mean industries... The now, the now conservative voting mining communities? Well... They, one could argue that they had a massive economic sort of destitution that resulted in huge levels of depravity that are still permeating to, to today. And there are some conservatives who argue that Thatcherites and neoliberals, they focus too much on this efficient economic argument about free trade and globalisation, no, 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 and there's not no, no, enough no. focus on standards of living. No, 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 no. Look, look th th these are outdated arguments. You know, this is a re-rehearsal what we were talking about 40 years ago, 30 years ago. We are now where we are. So do we want the state to be smaller? Yes. Do we believe the free market supplies solutions to every single problem, including just-in-time supply chains? No, we don't. We believe there is something called the national interest. We believe there is something called security. We believe in self-sufficiency. I mean, the Conservative government closed the rough storage facility on the East Coast our gas storage facility. Why? We didn't need it. Because the big global companies have told us that just-in-time supply chains are enough. No, there is a case here for strategic economic nationalism. Does that run contrary to lifting the burden of regulation off small people? No, it doesn't. It's a different economic imperative. And I'll bet you if Thatcher was alive today, she'd be saying, the hell we're going to sell. You know, um, uh, chip companies, steel companies, 
to the Chinese. There's no way that Margaret Thatcher, the great Freemanite, would have done those things because some things are more important. And so you've got a Conservative Party with the worst of all worlds. It doesn't appear to believe in capitalism in the sense of the small entrepreneur getting on. It doesn't appear to ever act in the national interest. I mean, what the hell is it? Let's talk about inflation. Now, this is one of those massive problems, a disease of money, as I know you once called it. Um, <laughs> I do. Yeah. I still do every day. <laughs> uh, this was a huge issue in the 1970s, and yeah. it's, again, a huge, huge issue. People could be seeing 20% real terms wow. pay cuts well, this, this year. Well, actually, I, 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 <laughs> here we are. So, Liz Trust taking over in a couple of days. And you've got the NHS crisis, the cost of living crisis, the potential energy crisis. Crisis upon crisis. One crisis no one's talked about. The potential sterling crisis. Nobody has even thought it. It's all too difficult. It's money. It's in the city. We mustn't bother our little heads with that. Well, I tell you what. You know, cable, sterling dollar has fallen from 130 to 116 over the course of the last few weeks. Unless you've been on holiday or you trade overseas, you wouldn't have noticed. Why does it matter? Because we're not self-sufficient in, ener in energy, because Boris insisted we would not be self-sufficient. We'd build ridiculous numbers of wind farms and import vast amounts of gas, oil, and indeed some coal that we still need for steel. We buy gas and oil in dollars. The world trades commodities in dollars. The weaker the pound is, the more pounds we have to pay to buy the oil in dollars, the even higher consumer prices go with people's gas bills, company gas bills, and everything else. If you look at it, it's very interesting. It isn't just the pound that's weak. This is not 1976 and the IMF bailout. The euro's broken parity with the dollar. Why? One six-word answer. <clears throat> we have problems in that we can't exist without... I mean, I mean, did you know that we imported electricity from Norway? Just astonishing. Just astonishing what these globalist idiots in both parties have done to us. On a bad day, we import over 10% of our electricity. Now, Norway have now said, well, hmm, given where we are, there may be no more electricity. And the French, of course, when it comes to it, will do exactly the same. We find ourselves in a real, genuine predicament on all of this. America is self-sufficient in energy. Trump guaranteed that. I fear, now there are some, Ambrose Evans-Pritchard uh, has written very eloquently in the last few days about how the Germans have been building up stockpiles, re realising their error. And I take that point of view. However, I uh, think, suspect, there could be more shocks to come from Putin, Ukraine. I mean, hey, he's got us where he wants us. Sanctions. Oh, we're putting sanctions on Putin. We're, the sanctions are hurting us much more than they're hurting Putin. He's found new markets in India and China and elsewhere. So I fear, that, so I, I, I fear, I think, sterling will run towards parity with the US dollar. That will incite panic. It will mean interest rates rising much, much faster than anyone thinks. Uh, and of course, inflation. If, if, if the pound falls, as a country that imports far too much, it could get to 25%. This winter is going to be so difficult for millions of Brits, especially with, as you mentioned, energy prices skyrocketing. Many people might go without energy, might go without heat. This is a complete mm. and utter disaster. How does one tackle this situation? As a 
free market supporter, as someone who believes in shrinking the size <coughs> of the state, yeah. state, as someone who believes that printing more money causes inflation. Which I do believe in totally. Absolutely. So, so do we have more handouts? Do we have furlough? How do, how do we help people this winter? Or do we let them be? Well, look, I mean, first things first. There are some of us, and in fact, the man that put me onto it was Christopher Booker, Sunday Telegraph in 2000, who explained to me that the wind project, the lack of investment in nuclear would mean we would at some point run out of energy. So full credit to the Sunday Telegraph. That's what first put me onto this 20 years ago. We need to become self-sufficient in energy. We need to start producing more food. You know, no more of this build back beaver rubbish that Johnson talked about. Or Boris said, oh, it's funny, isn't it? The end of coal, he said, at COP26. It's the end of coal. You know, the Indians and Chinese this year will burn four billion tonnes, more than ever in the history of humankind. I mean, you realise, the Tory party have lost it. They've become a sort of metro-liberal club, happy in their Notting Hill echo chamber and not linked with the real world. I have to say in the short term, there is going to be no way round it but massive state handouts, and I'm saying that. Despite all my views and all my beliefs, there is going to have to be a massive state handout. Not to do so risks, I'm afraid, in a country that's been spoon-fed by the state, you know, whether it's furlough or whatever it is, you've raised people's expectations of what the state will do for you. Not to do so will risk wholesale non-payment of bills um, and perhaps civil disorder that would dwarf the poll tax riots. Short term, she will have no choice. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Forget all the business about VAT and green subsidy. I've been banging on about this for a decade and more. Um, that's what will have to happen. Our debt will start to head towards two and a half trillion, maybe two and three quarter trillion. Funny, isn't it? When Cameron became Prime Minister, it was 650 billion. And yet when I stood up in the leaders' debate in the general election of 2015 and pointed out what had happened to the national debt, I was met by David Cameron saying, no, we've cut the deficit. And no one questioned him. We're led by morons. We're led by people who are economically illiterate. And that has run through both parties. We've not had honest conversations with the British public. This particular situation, in the short term, is going to need, for those reasons of stability that I've talked about, a lot of state money. I hate saying that, but I've said it. But we need a complete reversal of strategy. I do not want to nationalise... I don't want to nationalise state, you know, you know, turn gas, electricity and oil companies. Like in France with EDF. I don't want to do that. But I wouldn't mind government investing or working as co-partners in developing the Boland Shale Gas Reserve. Fine. Absolutely fine. And then we can enjoy lower prices. Do not believe for a minute the Treasury rubbish, the Whitehall rubbish, that it doesn't matter whether we produce the gas or somebody else does, because it's all available at world prices. Look what American consumers are paying. Far less than we are. So 
a proactive government involved in industry, co-investing with industry, but never nationalising it. Now, you talk about an honest public debate. One of those areas where the Conservatives have not been honest is immigration. (laughs) Now, you've been campaigning on this issue since 2004. You have become the synonymous politician almost with that particular issue. And it's the issue that really helped UKIP rise to power in 2014, Mm. that helped deliver the Brexit vote in 2016. Mm. And obviously, after 2016, voters felt that they'd been listened to in a way. They felt that by leaving the European Union, finally, we can take back control of our borders. The Conservatives today... And they felt safe in 2019 with Boris on this issue too. Absolutely. The Conservatives today, they argue that Brexit was was about control and not about numbers. What do you say to that? Uh, You know, this is your classic sort of public school you know, Lord Hannon type argument. But oh, no, immigration wasn't. Now I get to the council estates in the Midlands and the North or anywhere in the country. Speak to families who saw the wages compressed through massive levels of semi-skilled and unskilled labour coming into the country. Speak to people whose kids can't go to the local primary school because it's full. Because we have a birth explosion, the likes of which we've never seen in this country in our history. And vast numbers of those are born to foreign-born mothers. Doesn't make them all bad. I'm talking talking about numbers here. Talk to anybody who can't get a GP appointment. Talk to anybody who can't drive on a motorway. The population's increased by 8 million since 2002. And 84% of that is directly because of immigration. Labour started it. The Tories have continued it. And the reason they started voting for UKIP in huge numbers, the reason that the whole rebellion started that led to Brexit, to a huge Tory majority, is people said, enough! And what has happened since 2019, we now see that last year 1.1 million visas, legal visas, were given out. We're witnessing, I get emails every day from people just saying, my neighbourhood is now unrecognisable. And you know, when you live in a street where people speak the same language where you have similar cultural interests, similar shared histories. There will, of course, be some bad apples, but there's a degree of self-regulation that goes on as the community itself has an identity. I don't believe in this rubbish of there's no such thing as society. Thatcher was completely wrong or misquoted about that. There really is. There really is. When you replace a street like that with a street in which no one knows the names of their neighbours, They've never spoken to them. Where many in that street do not have shared histories, do not have shared cultures, do not have shared interests, socially, sporting-wise, whatever it may be. Where many in that street don't even speak the same language, whose kids don't play together in the street or after school. Then you have a community that cares less about each other and more about itself, and is more prepared to turn a blind eye to litter, bad language, graffiti, crime, whatever it may be. And I know I'll be condemned for saying this, but I'm going to say it. You break down our communities, you break down the civilised order that we've been used to, and you have a recipe for lawlessness, a recipe for an unhappy society. And when you have immigration running, legally and illegally, at the levels you've got, there is no prospect, no hope of community cohesion, of integration actually going on. And since 2019, we've seen legal numbers just spiral. I mean, forget about your kids buying a house. That ain't ever going to happen. All these aspirations are never going to happen. And health-wise, 
Well, if you can't afford private insurance, you're in big trouble. Big trouble. I'm about to do a story tonight on GB News about mouth cancer. You know, we are, we are now at the highest we've been ever because of lack of dental services that have taken place during the pandemic and since. Just one little example, but to tens of thousands of people, you know, this is very, very, very real. And then we witness the humiliation of what is happening in the English Channel and the displacement of those people in hotels all over the country. I went to Sunderland. People were furious. What the hell is going on? And now in the last few weeks, the final humiliation. Huge numbers of Albanian criminals with their prison haircuts, their prison tattoos, coming into Britain to join the criminal gangs. How many more moped muggings? How many more knifings? How many more levels of gun crime do you need to understand the Conservatives have completely failed Britain? To say any of what you've just said is extremely difficult and I think in some ways courageous because the debate over immigration has been one which has been toxic for the last 20 years. You've been on the receiving end of that. You've experienced personally what it feels like oh, yeah. to, to talk about this issue. To be vilified. To be vilified. Mm -hmm. And... It seemed for a long time that immigration wasn't talked about after Enoch Powell's Rivers of Blood speech. He completely got that wrong. He, it was completely over the top. He'd given a similar speech in Walsall a few weeks ago, a few weeks before that hadn't been noticed. He was trying too hard. And he actually made the subject difficult to talk about for years and years. And today, I feel perhaps that sense of not being able to talk about immigration has crept back in the mm. last few years. Mm. Since the Brexit vote, since the issue was allegedly written off, that yeah. was it. Immigration was done. Now, again, it's you back. can't really talk about it. Do you agree well, with that? Well, I'm sorry. No, no, no. It's back. It's back. The public weren't talking about it because they thought it had been dealt with. You're quite right. You, know, you, you, you said that a few minutes ago. It is now back. It is now front and centre. It is, particularly in the red wall, the second most important issue behind, obviously, the cost of living crisis. This issue alone will cost them the next election. I want to talk about the political implications of immigration. Now, you've, had, you've talked about the economic and societal consequences of it, the political consequences. <coughs> Are we going to see an insurgency? You, you referred to this well, in your recent Telegraph article. I did, yeah. I mean, I, it's quite funny, really. I mean, <laughs> for all the vilification I got, actually, I pretty much single-handedly killed off the British National Party and their rise in sort of 06, 07, 08, 09, uh, the BNP were on the march in many, many northern towns, winning council seats, you name it, even getting two MEPs elected under PR to the European Parliament. I saw Nick Griffin off because I said to BNP, but I looked down the barrel at PNP voters and said, look, if you're voting BNP because you're unhappy, but you don't want to vote for an overtly outright racist party, come and vote for me. That was my pitch. That was my appeal. And do you know what? It worked. It worked. I got two thirds of BNP voters to vote UKIP. The third, who absolutely believed in what they believed in, and, you know, we can condemn that, but that's the world we live in, st stuck with them. But that, that was the end of it. There is a political vacuum that has opened up again in British politics on the, on the right, and I suspect somebody will fill it. I suspect whoever comes along and fills that gap will make me look like a Notting Hill metropolitan <laughs> member of the Liberal elite, because I suspect that's what's going to happen. And it'll be nasty, it'll be ugly. And here's the remarkable thing. The insurgency, the UKIP insurgency, built on patriotism, built on national democracy, built on national self-interest, built on border controls and the right levels of immigration within our communities and our society, 
It all happened during relatively benign economic circumstances. Yes, we had the great financial crash of 08, but it didn't really affect people. Government just increased debt, bailed the banks out, and everybody carried on. You know, hardly anyone lost their jobs. Inflation didn't rocket. Interest rates didn't. You know, I mean, all those things. And to have such a fundamental constitutional change take place in economic peacetime was a pretty remarkable thing. And now we're going into, well, recession. Who knows? Maybe depression. It's not completely impossible. If the D word happens, we will see very radical and possibly violent political change occurring within Europe and the UK. I don't think any outside party in the UK can win power. The system is rigged against anyone new coming in. You can't raise money without the donors being, big donors being um, subject to inheritance tax. There's a first-past-the-post system. There's a crooked postal voting system. So it may be that a political insurgency doesn't win many seats in Parliament, but it will once again fundamentally reshape conservatism. We've done a few interviews now, Nigel, over the years, and I have to say I don't think I've ever seen you so angry with the Conservative Party. Betrayal. Nothing in life upsets you, whether it's at a personal level, a political level, a national level, than betrayal. And I, you know, in 2019, at the start of that year, I'd managed to get the Brexit Party registered as a political party, just in case. It was my insurance policy. UKIP had gone off with Tommy Robinson and Neil Hamilton and God knows, uh, Uncle Tom Copley and God knows who. And as it became clear that March the 29th was not going to be the day we left the European Union, I began to sort of, you know, get ready, prepare. I launched it within six weeks, and it took off like a rocket. Within six weeks, in a European election, five and a quarter million votes, biggest party in Europe, and how ironic is that? (laughs) Mrs May resigned before the results. I mean, what a bush. I I was really proud of that. The press say... Ruthless Boris Johnson got rid of it. No, he didn't. He voted for a third time round. I mean, ruthless, you know, twice he voted against the deal, the third time he went with it. And then as the election approached, I remember talking to Chris Hope on one of the podcasts, Joe Chopper's podcast, and I had a big choice in that election. Do I go around the country, rubbish the deal, call Boris a liar, say vote for the Brexit party, knowing that in this election, been different before, 15 was different, 15, I hurt the Labour vote much more with UKIP. But knowing in this election I'd hurt the Conservative vote, and at least we get a form of Brexit, or risk the Liberal Democrats winning from Isha and Walton down to the Silly Isles, you know, a whole slew of seats in Parliament, maybe a second referendum. And so I, after a bit of behind-the-scenes negotiation that went on between Number 10 and myself through intermediaries, decided to basically throw him a towel and say, right, I'm not going to criticise this deal anymore. I'll say it could be better, but it's the best we've got. I feel to some extent that I did contribute to Boris Johnson becoming Prime Minister. I did help him get the majority that he got. I did so on a level of trust. I mean, not complete and utter trust, but a level of trust. And that at every level, I feel let down by this government. I think the country's been let down. I think Brexit's been let down. I can now see the establishment lining up to blame every single woe of our nation on Brexit. And I I worry that they'll do their best to overturn the legacy that I fought for for over a quarter of a century. Do you know what? I am angry. So what are you going to do about it? Well, I can 
do what I am doing, which is through media, working with you guys at the Telegraph, through doing what I do on GB News for feeding the 3.3 million people I have on social media. I joined Getter this week, which could be a new avenue to perhaps not being shadow banned all the time by Twitter. I will do my best to influence arguments. I will do my best to be ahead of arguments. I'll do my best to educate, to inform, to get people to pressurise their members of parliament, whether they're Labour or Conservative. And I go on doing all those things. And I'll go on doing them with the same level of passion and energy that I've always had. Your next question, of course, uh, which you predicted <laughs> I'm not that stupid. Um, the <laughs> next question is, you know, would I get involved in politics again? I mean, you know, I did it for a heck of a long time. If there was a level playing field, then I probably would. But there isn't. It just isn't. I mean, number one, my name's Nigel Farage. I'm never going to get an even break from the press. But that I can live with. The funding rules are just ludicrous. I could not raise big money without the donors then being charged inheritance tax on their donations. I mean, can you believe it? You know, talk about rig system. First past the post system, utterly corrupted postal voting list. 2014, UKIP won a national election, the European elections, the first victory since 1906 by a party that wasn't Labour or Conservative. 2019, we smashed them into oblivion with the Brexit party. But 2015, four million votes and one seat. And you're asking me to do that all again. Just very briefly to end the interview, I want to talk about an alternative scenario. If Liz Truss, she wins the Conservative leadership election, she turns things around, the international economy improves. She goes into 2024 against Keir Starmer, a weak Labour politician who relies on the SNP, who's going to have to rely on the SNP probably to form any kind of government. And she wins that 2024 election. Now, again, this is a bit of a hypothetical. You're a fantasist, do <laughs> In the United States, yeah. we have a certain Donald Trump we who do. just, again, run for we re-election do. campaign in 2024. He's won. Okay, so we have President Trump. We have Prime Minister Truss. What would Trump think of Truss? <laughs> well, if she was to stick to the bold lines that she's given us on stage at the hustings over the last few weeks, he'd, he'd think, yeah, she's a spirited girl. Or New York words to that effect. <laughs> <laughs> but I suspect that she'll crumble. And I suspect she won't be up to it. And what do you think about it, really? I mean, she's been a cabinet minister for eight years. And in cricket terms, with the public, she hasn't troubled the scorer. Who even knew who she was three months ago? Virtually unknown. Eight years in cabinet. And she can talk about trade deals and but she hadn't registered you know, with the public over that time. And that, uh, look, I repeat at the end of this interview, I hope I'm completely and utterly wrong. I hope she's a one in a 10 million. I hope she's an amazing, spirited person who's genuinely been through this Damascene conversion and has got the guts and the courage and the conviction to really take on the establishment, civil service, everybody, and do great things. But the lesson of a longer life than yours is never trust the Tories too much. They always let you down. And I suspect they're headed for a big disaster at the next election, which will then be an opportunity for a complete rethink. And you know what? Starmer, he's not Corbyn. He doesn't scare me. And just very, very briefly, sorry, but with, with Trump, have you, has he, have you spoken to Trump about trust? Has he asked for your political no. advice? No, 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 no. Wait until things happen. Yeah. <clears throat> you know, Boris, I mean, Trump was obsessed with Boris. He liked Boris. He wanted Boris to be good. 
He couldn't believe how liberal Boris had gone. He couldn't believe the wind farm stuff. The net he couldn't believe it. He felt very, very disappointed. At the minute, Trump is very, very focused on the Republican Party, the midterms, uh, maybe trust very soon. Thank you so much, Nigel, for joining us. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this show and are interested in hearing more episodes like it, please follow this podcast and drop us a review. If you have any suggestions of people you would like to be interviewed, you can let us know via the Apple Podcasts app.